Hello guys, Paul here. Unfortunately, we uh, do not have a regular Dutch News podcast episode this week because in a freakish coincidence, both Gordon and I are away. Uh, But instead, we have a special episode in store for you, which was originally published to our Patreon supporters in the summer. In this episode, we don't discuss the news, but rather a number of stories from Dutch history, which Gordon and I thought are fascinating. And we'd love to uh, tell you something more about these stories. Uh, Two of them uh, are remarkably related to the current affairs though. Uh, Gordon has a story about a forger who was responsible for a real Vermeer mania in the years before World War II, uh, much like the uh, current Vermeer exhibition in the Rijksmuseum in Amsterdam, uh, which is uh, also causing a craze right now. Uh, This forger even managed to sell a fake Vermeer to a high-ranking Nazi, and if you want to find out who that was, stay tuned. And I have a story about how a Russian czar became obsessed with the Netherlands and even modeled the capital of Russia after Amsterdam and adopted a version of the Dutch tricolor as the new Russian flag. Uh, This uh, 17th century friendship is in sharp contrast with the current state of the Russo-Dutch relationships. Uh, This week the Dutch military intelligence service revealed that Russian ships have tried to collect details about Dutch offshore internet and electricity cables and gas pipelines, uh, probably in preparation of sabotaging these crucial infrastructure, uh, and also 10 Russian diplomats accused of espionage were expelled from the country, and this was all in a matter of a few days. So if you want to know more about the times the Netherlands and Russia got along much better, and the Netherlands had an important influence in Russian culture and language, stay tuned for that. And uh, next week we will be back with a regular episode, but until then we hope you'll enjoy this unusual episode, uh, and for now, bye-bye. The, the Bernie van Boymans um, Museum in Rotterdam, which plays quite a big part Pottery in the story. Sorry, oh, Boymans van Boningen, sorry, yeah. Welcome to this uh, special Patreon episode, uh, our summer special. Um, it is, after all, summer. It's Konkommertijd, so there's no news. Uh, we don't have any developments in the Seward van Linde story. Uh, yeah. We don't have any uh, former EU commissioners that uh, are, uh, <laughs> you know, accused of um, of corruption. Yeah, Fred Taven hasn't got a new job. Yeah. Uh, also, the paper notes are not yet in the store. They are. Um, the so, paper yeah, notes the- are in the stores. <laughs> yeah, I know. Um, so there's no news to tell you. So uh, yeah, we're just going to do a, a special episode uh, without news, uh, but with uh, some history. I'm joined today by Gordon, Derek, as always. Hello. Hi, Gordon. Are, are you already melting? I am already melting. Yeah, this is, uh, we're recording this on July the 19th, which is gearing up to be possibly the hottest day um, in the Netherlands or one of the hottest days. And it's going to be 38 degrees. There's a big national heat plan to tell people to drink more fluids and, uh, and not go out, not, not go running marathons. So, yeah, I'm following that advice very diligently um, to try, try to survive this day of terrible heat. And uh, we're also joined by uh, Robin Pesco. Welcome again. Good. Uh, good morning to you. Thank you. Um, how is your, How are you uh, spending your summer right now? Well, I've just come back from two weeks away visiting mates, actually, in a very hot south of France. So I, I don't know what the fuss is about here. I really don't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, are there no heat plants in the south of France? I don't think so. You just sort of stay inside and eat lots, don't you? I mean, it's uh, uh, no. Like Never plan. heard of it, and it's bizarre. And I'm, you know, I'm quite cool. We've got new double glazing, so my house is fine. It's always dark, so uh, I'm quite happy. I haven't noticed it yet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you're well prepared. Um, I'm also melting right now. I have to I have to say. So um, I think we should just uh, crack on. <laughs> yeah. And get this over with as soon as possible before we all yeah, die. Before we expire beneath um, our blankets, which is exactly not the aim. yeah. yeah. So uh, what we're going to do, uh, we are doing a sort of um, a horrible history uh, type episode. Um, I wasn't entirely sure what it was, but I looked it up uh-huh. and I am, am familiar with this concept because uh, when I was uh, as a child, I read a lot of these books because it's also a book series, isn't it, Gordon? It is, yes, yeah, a series of books and it was a TV program um, yeah, that, uh, that I got into when, when my children were growing up. Um, so, um, and uh, yeah, that, that, uh, you, you just kind of take colorful episodes in history and um, yeah, pick out the gory details effectively. I think that's the, 
uh, that's kind yeah. of the vibe and it's uh, yeah it's it's all very entertaining so people might think it's summer holidays schools are out but no here you're getting the history lesson from yes. Dutch news that's what yeah. we're saying exactly yeah? but an entertaining yeah. but with gruesome details yes. so yeah, yeah there's something to look forward to <laughs> And I think, Gordon, uh, we're just going to start with uh, with your story. What did you pick? Okay, so yeah, uh, I've picked uh, two things, and uh, so have you. And the first thing I was going to pick was uh, the uh, demise of the De Witt brothers in the 17th century, um, which uh, some people uh, may have come across. It's one of these things that pops up once in a while on Twitter as a meme, and people often... Uh, caption it with the question did the dutch really murder and eat their prime minister in the 17th century <laughs> and um, it, yeah. it's more or less more or less that's what they did in fact um so yeah yeah, yeah. And it's also something that that uh, often pops up on um history meme pages on on instagram for example yeah. and then there is a map of the world with countries that have eaten their prime minister and only the netherlands is colored in yeah uh, so yeah it is it is one of these uh yeah uh, i think famously famous facts that that, uh, that uh, uh, belong to the Netherlands. But you're going to explain what it's all about and if we really eat in the Prime Minister's or not. <laughs> yes, yeah, so if we're in the habit of eating Prime Ministers in this country as well. So this, <laughs> this was in the, in, in the, in the 17th century, um, in, 17, in, so in 1672, which uh, is known in Dutch history as the Rampia, the disaster year. Um, yeah. And Johan de Witt at the time... Th- I think... I think 2021 is uh, <laughs> is a new uh, is the new ramp year, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, or, or, yeah, yeah, 2020 or 2020, the pandemic year. I don't know. Anyway, we have like, plenty of ramp years. Uh, We've lots to choose from in, 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 in the near past. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, so you, uh, and at this time, Johan de Witt uh, had the title of a Ratspensionaris uh, in the province of Holland, which is uh, in, in English we call it Grand Pensionary. But effectively, he was a very powerful politician um, in, the, in, the, in the system of the Dutch Republic. So bear in mind that the, the, the Dutch Republic had uh, declared, had become independent in 1648 at the end of the Eighty Years' War with the Treaty of Utrecht, um, and the United Provinces quickly became very wealthy and influential. And Johan de Witt um, had this title of Radspunsenaris in Holland, and although the Dutch just, the the, um, the provinces were run by a council, uh, he really was the most powerful man because Holland was the was the biggest, the most populous, the wealthiest province, so it, it had all the power, effectively. Um, it, that, that is also the reason why uh, when people talk about the country, the Netherlands as a whole, they often call it Holland yeah. because that's the most important part of the country. So, yeah, don't mind about Drenthe, don't mind about Limburg. No. Holland is, is the place to be yeah. in this country or Friesland. Yeah. Uh, and that, that's why where this confusion uh, comes from historically. Yeah, exactly. Um, so he he had this title for t- t- nearly 20 years. I mean, he took the office of uh, Raz Pensionaris at the age of 27 um, in 1653. Uh, he was the son of um, quite a well-connected patrician family. Um, and he had a brother called Cornelius de Witt, an older brother, and the two of them uh, were very big political players in the 1650s, and they founded a political party. Um, in fact, which was did they? they did yes, which was called, oh. believe it or not, and uh, because um, in 1650 the, um, the the province of Holland was uh, represented by uh, Stadthouder uh, Willem II, um, which is kind of a noble title that dates back to the Burgundian era. But when he died very suddenly in 1650, there was no one to take over, and so they entered a thing called the first Stadthouder-less period, and Johan de Witt took on this, became the most powerful man in um, the province of Holland. And he, he founded this political party. He, he, he liked the fact there was no Stadthouder. He, the, the political divide at that time was between the Orangist faction, who wanted to have a new Stadthouder from the, from the House of Orange, and the, the De Witt brothers, who set up this party, um, which is a Republican party, essentially. And De Witt called this period the, the true freedom, the Vare Freiheit. He thought this was much better than having a, a royal or a kind of notional royal running your affairs. Um, and his oh, party, wow. the party that the Witt brothers founded, was called the Partei van de Freiheit. No. <laughs> yes, it was. It really was. Really? No. Yeah. <laughs> and he, he w- did he wear a wig? Yeah. Uh, like this, one of these blonde wigs? Or was he, this, uh, he had like an ice cream style hair, yeah, hairdo on his wig. Yeah. Um, yeah, but not the Partei van de Freiheit, oh, wow. the Partei van de Freiheit, the party of freedom. So, so subtle difference, but yeah. Ah, just like Partij van de Toekomst and Partij voor de Toekomst. Exactly. Uh, yeah. uh, sort of like difference. And you, you said he was uh, uh, the stadtholder for 20 years? or the no, 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 he was the Ratspensionaris for 20 years. years, yeah. Okay, so so Rutte still has eight years to go before he can uh, uh, actually claim uh, the title of longest serving prime minister then. Yeah, well, this is and the thing. 
And then that's the thing. See, I think yeah, I think last week uh, Ritter was asked about uh, how long he's going to carry on. And he said, well, I think I'm maybe halfway there. But Ritter, being a historian, should know what happens to prime ministers who hang on for 20 years and uh, not, rel- <laughs> not relish the prospect. <laughs> so. Yeah, as we will hear uh, <laughs> soon, uh, soon later. Yeah. Um, Oh wow! So do you think do you think uh, Geert Wilders uh, <laughs> derived this name of his party from from this party or not? Uh, I don't know if Hill Wilders has that m- m- amount of uh, historical awareness, but perhaps he did. You know. Yeah. Who knows? Yeah. Um, so anyway, so he took this uh, job in 1653, and actually, these are most of the time uh, it was a very successful, prosperous time for the Netherlands. Um, uh, Johan de Witt was a um, was an economist, and he 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 concentrated on paying paying down the debt that the Dutch had run up uh, during the, um, the the struggle to liberate themselves from Spain. So, um, and then of course he also masterminded the raid on the Medway, where the Dutch fleet sailed up the uh, all the way up to the Thames and uh, defeated the English. Um, in an absolutely humiliating defeat for for England. Um, so for the first fifteen years, of his didn't they? Uh, didn't they um, 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 uh, steal the flagship, the British flagship, uh, and, and towed it back to to the Netherlands? They did. Yes, indeed. Uh, yeah, and uh, the, the Royal Charles wasn't it called the Royal Charles. That's right. And I think the the, um, uh, the the sort of crest on the front of the ship was was taken off, and it was it wasn't actually returned to to England until about. Uh, until about five years ago, uh, back in Villamil Alexander. Yeah. yeah. And ironically, the English are very mad uh, uh, at us for stealing uh, historical artifacts yes. uh, to our own countries. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a wonderful irony, that, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, but maybe that's where they got the inspiration for the for the British Museum. Yeah. <laughs> Probably, yeah. Yeah, uh, but yeah, but back to Johan de Witt. So, so the first thing you knew is his rule went quite well. He was, he was he was extremely powerful. He was known in Europe as King John because although he wasn't a royal, he had pretty basically as much influence as a royal. His his office was kind of the equivalent of Prime Minister, Foreign Minister, Home Affairs Minister, all rolled into one, and charts of the and um, Treasury Minister. So he was kind of like the Steph Block of his day in many ways. Um, <laughs> But then we got to the Rampia in 1672, and it all went kind of horribly wrong. Um, and in the Rampia, the, the saying about the Rampia is that uh, uh, they say, <laughs> So the people were unreasonable, the, the, the government was uh, had lost its way, and the country was unsalvageable basically it was uh, yeah, yeah. The, 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 everything went to pot basically this is this is the, these are these are the few exceptions that the dutch version of this sounds better than the english translation <laughs> yeah exactly it's okay it was um yeah it, it was yeah it, it, it was one of the few few occasions as well when actually dutch history uh, is, is worse than brexit so it, it, <laughs> it just sounds like it's repeating itself. I can't believe the parallels between now and the past. It's so scary. Yeah, I know there's a pattern for the yeah. fire height. Things are falling apart. It's uh, it's all over the place. <laughs> Um, so yes, yeah, so, so, and, and part of the reason that uh, the Grand Prix happened actually was that um, after the, um, uh, the, the the defeat of um, uh, of England in the Second Anglo-Dutch War, the the the, the dastardly English signed a secret treaty with the French, which basically stitched up the Dutch, and they said that they they formed a secret alliance where if the French where, where England would um, yeah, support France in an invasion of the Netherlands and um, of the Dutch provinces, uh, and uh, in return for that. King Charles got a nice pension from the from the French as well. So, um, and in 1672, uh, this kind of went. And also, we should say that um, William uh, William the Third, the son of um, uh, William the Second, the Stadthouder, uh, the previous Stadthouder, uh, was a cousin to Charles the uh, Second of England. So there, there was this ah. real kind of in, yeah, there's incestuous dimension to this as well. So we have the Orangist faction supporting William. We have the Republicans on back of De Witt, and then we have this, uh, and everything started deteriorating very fast when the French invaded in 1672 and they quickly overran the Dutch partly because although Johan de Witt had spent a lot of money making the Dutch navy the biggest and the most formidable in Europe he hadn't spent very much money on the army so when the French came over land uh, the Dutch were screwed basically and um, yeah. they were very very quickly they also got invaded from uh, the, the, the west as well by, by Munster uh, the German province of Munster um, so, yeah, the, 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 so the French invaded, um, uh, the, the people weren't happy, and uh, Johann de Witt, he was attacked in by an Orangist faction in The Hague. The Orangists were quite strong in The Hague, and he was attacked and stabbed on the Platz, which is the square uh, with all the cafes and bars behind the Binnenhof, where people had their lockdown, their anti-lockdown <laughs> parties uh, a couple of years ago, um, you, you've seen on t- Twitter. 
So David was um, uh, was attacked. He was injured. Um, he carried on for a few weeks, and then in August he resigned from his position of Erat Pantaneris. And meanwhile, his brother Cornelis um, he was arrested in July for trying to murder, uh, allegedly plotting to murder William the uh, William um, uh, the son of the Stadtholder, William of Orange. Um, and he was taken to the Kafangaport, which is a museum just opposite the Binnenhof in, in The Hague. And he was tortured uh, in an attempt to extract a confession, which was quite routine in those days. I don't know whether they just uh, kind of uh, uh, played Dutch radio to him until he couldn't stand it any longer. But uh, <laughs> they had a dire straight CD on, on repeat. But in any case, uh, he didn't crack, he didn't confess, um, but they decided to sentence him anyway to exile. And the day before mm. he was due to be exiled, um, his Johann de Witt got a message to go and visit his brother Cornelius in prison. Um, because he, they, they decided they were going to try and appeal the, the case on the basis that Cornelius hadn't actually been confessed to anything or been convicted of anything. Um, so he got a message to go and visit his, his brother in the Kafara port. And um, when he went along, everything was quite quiet. There were a couple of guards on duty, um, nothing on toward. But as soon as he went inside, a mob started to form outside the prison. Um, and uh, Did they bring tractors? Well, we'll get to this, actually. Um, oh. <laughs> uh, yeah, and, and, and the mob was drummed up by a guy called Willem Tichler, who'd been arrested together with um, Cornelius de Witt, and he'd been accused of forming the plot with him. But Tichler was actually an orangist, and he was liber- he was freed uh, without charge. And when he left the prison, around about the same time that Johann de Witt went in, he started going round the Hague, basically telling people that Cornelius de Witt had been found guilty of high treason. So everyone got very uh, angry. Mm. They started sending, you know, sending each other messages on Twitter, uh, saying, "Come to the, you know, come to the Kafanga port." So by the time, so, so while the brothers were sitting there uh, chatting, uh, this huge mob uh, um, uh, uh, amassed around the outside the entrance of the prison. And by three o'clock in the afternoon, so after about five hours, uh, they finally broke into the prison. Um, and at some point, there is a story that the guards had fled because they were told a rumor that a, a mob of angry farmers were heading up. Up, um, who've been drink, who've been <laughs> drinking all day? Well, this is absolutely true. We're, we're heading we're heading up to cause havoc. So, so the guards, by this account, fled. Um, the mob broke in. They dragged the two brothers out, and. Yeah, Johan was struck in the head with a pick, first of all, by a notary. I also think it's a nice detail. The guy, the guy, first guy who attacked him was the, the most placid, was one of the most placid servants you'd normally expect to happen. You know, I, I imagine this notary was very well dressed and sort of um, it, it, it attacked him with a pick in a very dignified manner but anyway um, <laughs> yeah uh, but yeah so, so, so he was attacked and uh, the, the two brothers were then shot in the back of the head they were stripped naked and they were taken up to the Pfeifferberg which is just opposite the on the opposite side of the um, Pfeifferberg means pond mountain basically it's, it's a little mound just opposite uh, beside the, Bin, uh, the Binnerhof Lake opposite the parliament building and that was where the public gallows was in the Hague at that time and so they were taken there they were hung mm. upside down and then the yeah the, the the mob basically proceeded to dismember them so they chopped off their their fingers thumbs their toes their ears their lips their noses and their hands um and finally the ultimate humiliation they they castrated them and apparently a dead cat was laid between Cornelis de Witt's legs i don't know what this symbolizes but um <laughs> Surely something. <laughs> Surely something. Yeah, maybe Mark van der Nuffer of Farmers Defence Force has a view on this. But um, mm. uh, yeah, because he said that the the, what, the, the children of um, the uh, the nitrogen minister were pussies when they wouldn't come out to, to talk to the farmers. <laughs> so perhaps as a continuation, uh, maybe there's a historical link there. I don't know. Anyway, the, yeah. the, so the, the, so these two brothers are now uh, dead as doornails, hanging upside down from the gallows and being chopped to pieces by this angry mob. And according to one witness, um, the guy called Joachim Aldam, he uh, said the body parts they were either consumed by the crowd or fed to their dogs. Delight. Very dreadful. There's also a famous painting of the bodies hanging on the gallows in the Rijksmuseum. Yeah. Um, so uh, if you uh, go there, you can uh, you can look that up. Yeah, I'm really curious. Why would you put a dead cat between <laughs> them? Um, I know. It's like. Hmm. But 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 otherwise the parallels are again uh, very striking with uh, with today. I think yeah. with all these angry farmers and uh, uh, that have been drinking all day and are angry at. Uh, at, uh, yep. yeah, yeah, heading at up the to minister. the Hague in their tractors, no doubt, or yeah. their ponies and traps, and uh, yeah, to to harass the to harass the prime minister and his brother. Um, although hopefully this time not to murder him and chop him to pieces. 
I'm going to have to press you on this, though, Gordon. Were yeah. they actually eaten, or is it just one eyewitness who well, said so? Yeah, this this is the thing. I think there are kind of there isn't a huge amount of evidence they were actually that the, the crowd stood about eating eating their body parts. So there are also I, I came across references to roasted livers, which seems a bit you know the idea that actually came along with their barbecues as well um, seems a bit far fetched. So I think some of the stories have definitely been exaggerated, but um, certainly not all of the artifacts were eaten because if you go into the house historic museum which is on the other corner of the um uh, of the lake outside parliament uh, there is a tongue and a finger on display which apparently um belonged to one of the devitt brothers i'm not quite sure which um so they, they so they, they certainly weren't consumed and also uh, Joachim Audan, this witness uh, said that he bought one of the index fingers and he paid uh, two shillings and a flask of old beer for um, uh, for, for, for this uh, digit, um, but he also separately paid three stouffers for the brandy the finger being preserved in. So that was a very itemised bill. Uh, I hope he kept the bonnetier and uh, deducted <laughs> from his taxes. Yeah, yeah, sent to I hope so too. Yeah, yeah. And also Cornelius Devitt's widow, she she fled the Hague in a in a carriage, and um, according to one account, uh, she was uh, one of the other passengers on the carriage uh, with. Uh, bear in mind, the widow of a man being brutally murdered, uh, showed off the fact that he had one of her husband's fingers. Uh, that he'd bought for a couple of stouffers in the aftermath of the mob. So, <laughs> very nice. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's Dutch directness uh, to take into extremes. That isn't it. <laughs> I didn't spot. So, oh, you're, you're the widow of that you're, that guy. You'll never guess what I got in my pocket. <laughs> It's just as well we didn't have tickies in those days as well, isn't it, really? I mean, you can imagine those going, you know. You owe me for that finger. Um, yeah. So, uh, yeah, speaking of horrible history, this is definitely, uh, you can definitely call it a horrible history. Uh, lots of artifacts uh, still on display in several musea, yeah. museums throughout the country. So if you, uh, if you want to know more, you can just, you can just visit them. Yeah, you can, but you, I have you to can say, go to the House of Stores Museum. Yeah. And uh, yeah, as you say, you can, see, you can see the preserved finger and tongue on display in the museum even today. Yeah, and you could also go to the Prison Gate Museum, the Gevangenenport yes. in The Hague. Uh, it has all these, you know, uh, equipment of torture on display, you know, which they used uh, back in the days. Uh, it is a little bit tinier than the Tower of London. <laughs> I first yeah. went to the Tower of London, <laughs> saw how, how, how much stuff they had there. And after that, I went to the Gevangenenport and I was like, this is tiny. It's much smaller scale, <laughs> yes. It, it's, it's like the size of a quite a small house. And they just got this. You go in and there's like a cellar, isn't there? And uh, then you can go yeah. up to the upstairs rooms. But it is, yeah, it's much, it's much smaller scale than the Tower of London. But it's so definitely worth, it is uh, worth, worth visiting. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and then just yeah, just one final detail on this is that uh, there, there are there was uh, for centuries afterwards there's a historical debate about how this mob have suddenly appeared spontaneously outside the yeah. um, outside the Kvanborg Museum, and there are rumours persist to this day that uh, that William uh, the Stadthouder, who I mean after this the, the murder of the Witt brothers, uh, he became William the Third, uh, the Stadthouder of. Um, Holland, and of course, later on, a few years later, in 1688, he became the king of king of England and Scotland as well. And there are rumours that he was actually masterminded this, and the Orangist Party um, is a way of getting rid of the De Witt brothers. Um, William III was also a pretty nasty piece of work, really, because he's also rumoured to have masterminded the Glencoe massacre in Scotland in 1692, where uh, the um, uh, members of the Macdonald clan were slaughtered in their in their beds at uh, dawn. But the hmm. I found an interesting detail here uh, that the, the the, mass the Glencoe Massacre was first kind of brought to public attention in England in a pamphlet that was called A True Account of the Devitting of Glencoe. So they, oh, really? they made a direct link between <laughs> the murder of the Devitt brothers and the Glencoe Massacre. Uh, and, and this was written by an anti-orangist um, anti uh, pamphleteer who basically wanted to say that uh, William III had used the same techniques to bring down the Devitt brothers um, uh, to, uh, to, 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 to mastermind the, the, the slaughter of the McDonald's in Glencoe. So, and yeah. as a member of the Clam Donalds, I have to say that, uh, yeah, I, <laughs> this, um, yeah, this is enough for me to, uh, yeah, to, to make William III go a long way down in my estimation. So, yes, yes. Um, wow, that's that's fascinating yeah. that they that they actually used. Uh, the name De Witt as a, as, a, yeah. as a verb, basically. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, so it was obviously a well-known story at the time as well. So there we are. So yes, so, so go to the Comport Museum in The Hague. It's well worth seeing and see this torture equipment and then go to the Historical Museum and uh, look at the uh, dismembered finger and tongue of uh, one of the De Witt brothers. Uh, Have they been DNA tested, history. though? They should be, shouldn't they? 
Yeah, they should. You see, I think there's a lot of holes in this story. I've got my doubts about some of it, I have to say. (laughs) Yeah, you you see some missing parts in this story. uh, I see some gaps here, but, you know, (laughs) I'll go along with it for now. And it's very gruesome. Very gruesome. Yeah, very horrible. Yeah, my uh, horrible history story is uh, about how the Dutch word for trousers ended up in the Russian language. Uh, And for that, we have to go to uh, 1697, uh, when Tsar Peter the Great was ruling Russia. uh, And Peter was kind of a restless man. He was always on the move. Uh, He was very curious. He was very interested in basically everything. And uh, yeah, he he read and heard a lot about uh, how things were going in, in the rest of Europe. And he looked at... Uh, his his country. He looked at, uh, at at Russia, and he yeah noticed that Russia had been a little bit uh, lagging behind uh, the rest of the countries. And uh, at at some point, he was absolutely determined to modernize uh, his country and bring it up to standards to uh, uh, of the rest of Europe. And yeah, his ultimate goal was to enlighten Russia and turn it into a real Western country. And uh, for that, he decided that he would go to Europe personally to see things how uh, uh, how things were done there. So he uh, he boarded a ship and. Uh, uh, at some point in uh, 1697, he uh, landed in the Netherlands in Zaandam, of all places. Hmm. Uh, he uh, did, yeah, did he go on a tour of the windmills when he arrived as well? <laughs> he surely he must have been. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, uh, luckily for him, uh, that awful train station in Zaandam uh, uh, didn't exist yes. yet. Uh, otherwise, he would have uh, uh, returned immediately back to Russia. Yeah, and it's um, also, of course, where the first Albert Hein uh, shop was uh, established, <laughs> isn't it? So exactly. Albert Hein was founded. Yeah. So at least he could have exactly. got some, but he got some groceries, but probably not salads, as we were hearing this morning. No, <laughs> yeah, they'd have been run out of vegetables. <laughs> Indeed. Um, yeah, he he wanted uh, uh, he wanted a, a a decent and competent navy for Russia, so he decided to go to the country which has had the best navy at that time. You already mentioned that, uh, Gordon, that was uh, that was the Netherlands. And in Zandam, there were a lot of shipyards, a lot of uh, ships were built. And yeah, he was very interested in how that was done. And he actually wanted to experience it himself, how to build a ship. So he basically knocked on the door uh, in, uh, of a of a uh, house in Zandam. He said, "I want to I want to rent this place," uh, and he did. He he lived uh, he he uh, he just uh, lived in a very modest home while he was uh, working at uh, at the shipyards, um, uh, getting to know how how ships are actually built. Um, unfortunately for him, he tried to stay incognito. He wanted to remain anonymous. Unfortunately for him, he was uh, two meters and eight centimeters tall, mm. uh, which would go unnoticed nowadays in the Netherlands. Yeah. But at that time, that was just freaking freakishly large. Mm. Um, and also, he had uh, he had brought a, a quite a large entourage of a few dozen people with him. So yeah, that also doesn't go by unnoticed. It's not clear if he had rented a beer feed uh, at that time, <laughs> but surely he did. Mm. Because back then they were still allowed in Amsterdam. Yeah. Um, so um, uh, 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 quickly the rumor started to uh, uh, spread uh, around the uh, around the area that the Tsar of Russia was living in Zandam. Someone had recognized him, and that attracted hundreds and hundreds of people to this small wooden house in Zandam, mm. who all wanted to see a glimpse of the Russian emperor. It's not clear if they brought any tractors or that they. Uh, had rallied themselves on WhatsApp or Telegram, mm-hmm. but um, uh, a lot of people went there. Um, so the situation started to uh, uh, run out of hand, and it was the municipality of Amsterdam who invited him to come to work at the shipyards of the East India Company in Amsterdam. That was fenced off, it was closed off, so he could work there in uh, peace and uh, in all peace and quietness. Uh, and so he did. He eventually stayed eight days in Zandam. Yeah. After that, uh, the situation uh, r- ran too much out of hand. Um, but the house is still there. Uh, you can still visit it in Zandam. Right. Uh, it was uh, King William, William I, who became the first king of the Netherlands in 1815. He bought the house for his uh, daughter-in-law, who was a Russian Grand Duchess. He built a structure around it in, to have it preserved. But at the time, it was already almost 150 years old so already quite quite old mm. um, but yeah that that's that uh, ensured that it's still there and yeah you can visit it it's uh, it's uh, it's a pretty remarkable place to see it's also in the middle of Zandam um, in, at the very place you least expect it uh, but it's still there mm. and uh, it is it is uh, now one of the oldest wooden buildings in the Netherlands uh, because of this 
He has right. quite a lot to answer for with his with his ships, though. Um, I think the Tsar, because it was the bane of my life, one of my first ever jobs, and it's it's a complicated sort of add-on. But he had learnt in the Netherlands to build these ships that they called lighters, which were lots of little flat-bottom boats that were tied together and towed through the canals. And when he went to England to check out stuff there, they took that system. He took that system of boats and introduced it to to the Fens, which were also very Dutch. I think he thought it was a good mm. idea. At least this is how I remember it, because one of my first ever jobs yeah. as a as a junior reporter was they had found the remains of one of these boats in the mud somewhere in the fens of Cambridgeshire. <laughs> and I had to go and do a live report, you know, from this very exciting boat, which was fascinating, you know, not really at the time. But, you know, I mean, yeah. it just shows the sort of the links between Europe that, and, and how yeah. systems yeah. were that we kind of probably don't think about very often. But it's yeah. still there. Yeah. I looked it up for some weird reason the other day. There's still a whole website devoted to this damn boat in the mud. <laughs> Very interesting, yeah. Is the boat still and there, or they dragged it out and put it in a museum? I think it's sort of been taken out and preserved, but uh, right. I'm not, I, you know, I don't know. Yeah, they build a structure around it to preserve it. Yeah. Mm. Um, yeah, and that area uh, in Amsterdam where the uh, East India Company had its uh, dockyards is now the Tsar Peter neighborhood. Um, perhaps mm. you know it, uh, Robin. Uh, that is uh, that is the reason why it's uh, it's uh, it's named uh, uh, like that now. Um, but yeah, he he was mostly b- uh, interested in in, in shipbuilding, uh, and he brought all the techniques back to Russia. Russia, and that is why a lot of uh, naval terms in Russian are now basically the same as they are in in Dutch. Um, so I'm gonna play some uh, uh, Russian words, and I'm gonna ask you to. Uh, guess which word it is. Yeah, this one is is not uh, not related to uh, to uh, to the navy, but it is it is a real Russian word, and I want you want you to translate it to Dutch if if that if if you can. Bikinbarde. 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 Do you have any idea? Bikinbarde. Is it something to the Vik? Viking? No, it's uh, Bakkebaard. So Bakkebaard. Ah. Yeah, sideburns. Yeah. Sideburns, yeah. So, uh, yeah. So the Dutch word for sideburns is also a Russian word. It's, it's, right. So it's, did the Dutch uh, introduce sideburns to Russia? Did Russians not have yeah, them before apparently. then? Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have another one, which I, th- I think is... This one is my, is my, uh, my favourite. Flagstock. Flagstock. Flagdoll. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. That's also that's also that's a, a Russian word coming directly out of out of Dutch. So you guessed it. Uh, you guessed it correctly. Uh, and uh, also, which I found fascinating is North. 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 Yeah. North. Yeah. Yeah. And. Oost. 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 East. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. East. Yeah. And and South as well. It's also it's also a uh, yeah. a a Dutch word in Russian. Um, oh, that doesn't work. Did but that that uh, doesn't really sound like South because the "ou" clunk is, yeah, is really different. Yeah. Russians can nobody can can pronounce it. Russians especially. So, yeah. Also, north, south, east, west. These are all uh, Dutch terms in Russian. Apparently, they didn't have a word for that. So, so they, they did. Also, yeah, so they didn't really navigate before they met the Dutch. And seemingly, apparently, yeah. yeah who, 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 uh, apparently, they didn't. And uh, and this one. This is the last one. Brookie, you said trousers, so that was a giveaway. Brilliant. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So clothes, um, yeah, navigational terms, uh, navy terms. These are all words that uh, that that come uh, directly from uh, from uh, from Dutch into Russian. Oh, this one is also fun. Appelsin. Appelsin. Any idea? Appelsin. Appelsin. Oh, I was going to say apple orange. from uh, orange yeah. or whatever orange. it is. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. yeah exactly. Oh, uh, and we just uh, mentioned the the Royal Charles. Achtersteven. 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 Sternpost. Yeah. So, you know, yeah. There, but there are Dutch sort of sneaks in all over the world. It's really bizarre. And there's a great Scottish one. Gordon, this is one for you. Do you know mm. where uh, a button Ben comes from? Button Ben. No, a I button don't. Ben. No. And that's the Scottish term for a little yeah. house. Yeah. The big theory is it comes from the Dutch bow to binner. Does it really? Yeah. I'd never and that's one of the theories. Oh. And apparently, outside inside. Yeah. 
Because it was a little little house in the country. Yeah. I mean, a cottage, you know, a yeah, tiny place. With a little tiny yard or garden. So you had yeah. a, an outside and an inside. Yeah. And that was your, your, your bow to be, no? Your bow yeah. bend. I don't know if it's true, but I, I like it. And, and apparently in Japan, and that's also nautical, and I was told this by a Japanese friend, and I don't know if it's true, but I'm going to Japan in a couple of weeks. I'm going to find out. But um, the, the, the Dutch word for a naughty boy is a yuncha. Yeah. Hmm. Yuncha. Ah. <laughs> uh, a sailor, you know, a, a young sailor, because the Dutch, of course, had this long tradition of contact with the Japanese, which nobody else had. And that a girl yeah. uh, who is a bit wild in Japan is known as untembar. Uh, oh wow but wow. i mean i'm gonna find Very out if this is true this may be a myth yeah. but i'm gonna test yeah. it out and see yes. what happens are you also going to visit house temples uh i think that might be on the list i'm not quite sure and there's also of course in russia actually in st petersburg there is a dutch there is a dutch um thing there that that czar peter actually took there when i think about it but i haven't can't remember exactly what it is but i've got photos of it somewhere and it was hmm. something that he was influenced by the Dutch to build, and it still looks um, very Dutch there. Exactly, because, uh, yeah, as you said, uh, uh, Peter the Great, uh, uh, he, he stayed in the Netherlands for four months, and then after that he visited a number of other places, uh, London and also Paris, um, and Venice as well. But when he returned to Russia, he, he was so impressed and fascinated by Amsterdam that he vowed to build a second Amsterdam. And, and so he did, because he, he, he selected a, a, yeah, quite an isolated piece of land, basically a swamp, on the banks of the Neva River, and he ordered the construction of what would become St. Petersburg. And mm. St. Petersburg has, if you've ever been there, a lot of canals, uh, dozens of canals, hundreds of bridges like Amsterdam. They have no function whatsoever, but he saw no. them in Amsterdam and he thought, yeah, this is nice to have. We, I must have that as well. And the first building that was completed in St. Petersburg was a small wooden cabin on the north bank of the river where he would live for the next uh, years as the city on the other side was being constructed, uh, probably remembering his, his great time in Amsterdam. And yeah, that cabin also still exists. You can still visit it in better times, probably. Yeah. Yes, uh, it's not, also don't go covered right and, yeah. and no, don't go there now. <laughs> it's also covered by a separate structure and it is well preserved. And uh, yeah, it is uh, a nice little echo of, of his time in uh, in Amsterdam. Yeah, so sorry, it says Sir Peter the Great's button, Ben. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, what, what's also a, a, a gruesome detail is that. Uh, while he was staying in Amsterdam, he was fascinated by the public executions that were happening there. He he uh, requested an invitation of every hanging, of every beheading that happened in the, in Amsterdam while he was there, and he visited all of them. Right, he was quite fascinated right. by that. But he didn't, later, eat any, didn't eat any fingers. <laughs> he didn't eat his fingers. But later in his reign, um, he personally tortured his own son to death. Uh, who he accused of of, um, of treason or wow. whatever. So yeah, it is, he, he isn't a nice guy no. um, at all, uh, but he was really fascinated by that. He also visited uh, Boerhaave uh, in Leiden, uh, who has a, has a nice natural history museum named after him, so mm -hmm. you can go there as well. And he, um, he also um, uh, 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 was present during one of his uh, uh, anatomic studies. Uh, so yeah, he was really fascinated as well by the by the human body yeah. and not not in a very very pleasant way. Yeah, yeah, not, not in a very progressive or constructive way, but uh, nevertheless. No. Yeah. Does this mean we should be campaigning to change the name of the Tsar Peterbert in uh, Amsterdam then? <laughs> yeah, we we can officially cancel him right now, yeah. I think. Yeah. <laughs> All right, let's change the pace here, guys, because this is ancient history. I mean, there must be something gruesome or fascinating that's happened in more modern times that, you know, we don't know anything about. Uh, yeah, well, I've, I, I've um, yeah, selected a story about um, uh, the uh, famous art forger, Han van Meegen, which is uh, not such a gruesome tale, maybe, but quite uh, yeah, a tale of kind of de deception and double dealing and uh, yeah, forgery and, uh, yeah, and, and, and conning Nazis. And uh, Han van Meegen uh, <laughs> is a story that probably people, may, you may have uh, stumbled across or you may know bits and pieces of. Um, it pops up uh, uh, quite frequently. I think um, uh, Andre Tijden did a documentary about him which is worth watching uh, also the, the Boymans from Birmingham Museum in Rotterdam which plays quite a big part in the story um, uh, to their credit because they were well and truly taken in by Van Meegen um, have made quite a nice documentary on their website and it's only 12 minutes long 
Um, so that's mm. a, a good kind of way to get into the story. But yeah, Han from Macon, he was uh, he was he, he was an artist. He was a uh, um, uh, born in eighteen eighty nine, and he was uh, 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 grew up and lived in in the Hague. He wanted to become uh, a landscape artist, uh, but his uh, rather domineering father had other ideas. He said, "You're not going to make any money as a painter. You need to learn technical drawing." So he he became a draftsman and he studied or trained to become a draftsman. Studied construction engineering at the Technische Hochschule in Delft. Paul. So yes, I know. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, but he didn't finish. He built. He built one building. Do you know which one it is? I don't know which one it is. No, no. It is um, um, the clubhouse of a rowing uh, society in Delft. Uh, right. One of the city walls towers was extended. Uh, it's still there. Uh, I just passed by it uh, when I walked home uh, this morning. So uh, yeah, it's uh, it's still there. He built. He made one building. And, he made one uh, building. That's it. Yeah, and it's still yeah. standing. So I guess he gets some credit for that. Um, but anyway, he didn't finish his training. He uh, became an artist in The Hague, um, and uh, he had a few exhibitions. They were quite well received. He uh, did some sketches. Uh, he did a sketch of Princess Juliana's deer. She had a tame roe deer, and that became quite a well-known greetings card. But he, he didn't. what he really wanted was recognition as an artist, and he didn't get that at all. So he got quite uh, bitter and upset um, and with the, the money did he did he go to the to the art uh, uh, academy in vienna uh, by any chance or not? <laughs> no he didn't but perhaps uh, yeah, yeah. It, it, uh, yeah, but, but, yeah perhaps history would have been even worse if he had i don't know yeah. but uh, anyway no he didn't he, instead he moved to the, he bought a house in the south of france uh, after he'd, uh, he he divorced his first wife moved to the south of france um, and started uh, forging paintings really to kind of boost his income because uh, he did He'd earn a modest amount of money from his uh, sketches and also as a as an art teacher, but not really enough uh, for his his tastes. So he, and he started to develop very sophisticated fraud techniques. Um, and he so things like uh, uh, he did, he created paints that looked as if they'd been faded, so they were older. But his real his real kind of masterstroke was he he worked out um, after several years uh, to, to mix his paints with bakelite and then bake the paintings in the oven. So they looked as if, and then rolled them over with a bottle. So you had this kind of crackulio and these little cracks that you see yeah. in any old painting, any aged painting. Uh, so it, 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 he created this effect as if these paintings are very old and the, the paints on the canvas had cracked. Um, and that was his way of uh, making his paintings look as if they'd been, they were several hundred years old. And in 1937, he produced a painting uh, in the style of Johannes Vermeer called The Road to Emmaus. And this is a big game changer for him because now he created this painting, he presented it as a Vermeer and he presented it to a guy called Abraham Bredius who was the preeminent art critic and particularly preeminent Vermeer critic of his day in the 1930s. And Bredius, who's of an old man, quite a venerated, very respected, esteemed, venerated art historian, absolutely fell for it, hook, line and sinker. He wrote this article in an American art magazine called the Burlington Magazine, where he said, uh, just gushed about it, basically, and said, it's a wonderful moment in the life of a lover of art when he finds himself suddenly confronted with a hitherto unknown painting by a great master, untouched on the original canvas and without any restoration, just as it left the painter's studio. Now, unfortunately for him... Uh The painter's studio was in the south of France in 1937 and not Johannes Vermeer's <laughs> studio in Delft in the 17th century. <laughs> But that was really because he had this endorsement from the greatest, the, 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 the most uh, esteemed art critic of his day. Um, uh, that really um, crack, uh, cracked open the art market for um, for Han van Meeren. And he went on to produce about half a dozen of these um Uh, of these Vermeer forgeries. But what's kind of interesting about them, I find, is that it's not just that he didn't just forge uh, existing Vermeers. He actually created new paintings in the style of Vermeer. And particularly what he created was biblical scenes. Because the, the, this painting he created was the road to Emmaus. So that's the Bible story of um, Jesus after the crucifixion, meeting two travelers on the road to Emmaus and breaking bread with them. Um, and Vermeer was quite a new painter at this time, 1930s. Or he'd, he'd, he'd been sort of rediscovered. There was a big Vermeer revival. Ah. Um, and so Because, could, yeah. Now go because on. if you look at these paintings that he uh, you know, forged, You don't see Vermeer in it at all. No, it it doesn't look like Absolutely. it at all. I think. No, they're, they're awful paintings, really. I mean, there's no yeah. sort of you know the the, the the kind of you know sort of Jesus is painted with these very heavy eyelids, and you know the proportions are all wrong. And you look at them today with the knowledge that they're forgeries, and you think how could people be taken in? But 
there was a great movement at the time. Art critics were looking for Vermeer's because Vermeer didn't leave very many paintings behind. Not not much of his work survived. So we're constantly on the lookout for new Vermeer's because they were worth a lot of money suddenly. Um, and uh, you know the, 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 he'd become this kind of canonical, canonical painter, and so Vermeer presented and and the very the earliest known Vermeer is um, is is a biblical scene, but that's the only authentic biblical Vermeer that exists, and it's hanging in the National Gallery of Scotland in Edinburgh, and it's a picture of uh, Jesus in the house of Martha and Mary. So there's a theory that Vermeer must have painted more of these biblical scenes. And so Han van Meijeren basically piggybacked onto this theory and created, he filled in this gap that everyone was looking for. He sold people what they were looking for. And that's the reason yeah, they were taken yeah. in, I think, basically. So he yeah. created not just forged paintings, but he created a whole chapter. He made up a whole chapter of Vermeer's history, personal life story as a painter, uh, in order to sell his forgeries. So yeah, yeah, so, yeah so this painting, that um, yeah, The Road to Emmaus, was then... Um, Acquired by the Boymans from from Birmingham Museum, uh, which at the time uh, was run by a very um, ambitious uh, museum director who wanted to rival um, the Rijksmuseum. He wanted to create a gallery that was as good and as as, as popular and as uh, as prestigious as the Rijksmuseum. And he was looking around for you know, for, for important, significant miles, landmark paintings to fill his museum. And so they bought they bought this painting, thinking it was an original Vermeer. Um, they paid 1.25 million guilders, which is around four and a half million euros in today's money um, and Hunt van Meeker and basically he, he, he created this cock and bull story that it had been discovered in the attic of a family in Italy who, who were fleeing the fascists uh, who were fleeing Mussolini and they had to do, they, they had to dispose of it because they didn't you know because they were on the run uh, so, so, so he, he was basically posed although he paint, actually painted the painting he posed as the dealer um, as the middleman and obviously took a, took a, uh, took a great cut of the, uh, of, the, of the income so through his forgeries van Meeker became very very wealthy um, he painted about certain, and he bought a huge house in Amsterdam in the on the Kaiserskracht, which is called the Royer House. It's still there. It's at number three hundred and twenty-one, um, and it became known during the war years for these just absolutely raucous, debauched parties. So during the occupation <laughs> by the Nazis uh, during the wartime years, when Amsterdam was slowly starving, uh, Han van Meijeren was just living it up basically on his Ill, ill-gotten gains um, and still trading his forged paintings. And one trade that he did and became a famous was a trade that came back to haunt him, where he swapped um, a picture, a, a, a Vermeer forgery that he'd, um, uh, that he'd painted of uh, Jesus uh, t- uh, talking to uh, or uh, uh, with a woman who'd uh, been, t- it's called Christ and the Woman Taken in Adultery. So it's Jesus with a woman who's cheated on her husband, which is quite ironic because Van Meijeren was an absolute philanderer himself. Um, <laughs> and uh, the, the, he swapped this painting for about 200 authentic Dutch paintings, and the customer was um, none other than uh, Hermann Göring, the ah. the Airmar, the, 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 the Reichsmarschall, the, 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 the head of the German Air Force. And Göring himself, during the war, made a point of going around Europe, plundering as much art as he could get. He was an absolute art connoisseur, lover, and thief as well. So he stole a yeah. huge amount of art all around Europe. Um, he had a private train where he just went around, went, went down to Italy and just raided museums and galleries and uh, in France as well. So uh, Göring acquired this painting, and it was said that this was one of his most prized possessions in his entire huge art collection and he hung it in his private private house Karen Hall and there was a st- there is a story and I don't know how true it is it's probably complete nonsense but it's quite nice that when Goering was told while he was in captivity after the war that this was a forgery that he in the words of the uh, the guard who broke the news to him Goering gave him a look as if he discovered for the first time that evil existed in the world so <laughs> ooh, 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 ooh. <laughs> yeah yeah he Goering, he he wanted to have this this uh yeah Vermeer uh, forgery so much that he traded uh, 137 of his yeah, 137, paintings yeah, for yeah. it yeah 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 so so um, gordon i mean are these paintings worth any money today they are still worth something, yes, because they got this kind of historical curiosity value. And in fact, the the one that the painted that kicked it all off, the Road to Emmaus, is still in the possession of Boymans and Burningen. And I think, although they're going through a big renovation at the moment, but I think they they have put it on display, obviously with a description that explains that this is a family that was previously thought to be a Vermeer. And as I say, they made this documentary film about how he made these forged paintings. Um, 
and uh, yeah, and 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 and, uh, and the fact the whole art world was taken in for about a decade, where they thought that six or seven paintings by Vermeer were in fact Vermeers, and of course art galleries once there was this kind of run on acquiring these biblical Vermeers started bidding huge amounts of money to buy these paintings of Vermeer was churning out, and actually the quality of the paintings, I mean, the Road to Vermeer is a pretty bad painting, but the the later ones were worse. But people are so enthralled to this idea that they discovered this whole, yeah, this this whole stash of priceless Vermeers. They they, they bid ludicrous amounts of money for them. Yeah. Um, so yeah, uh, you you told us that uh, Hermann Göring uh, knew that he was uh, yeah he was cheated that uh, he bought a fake yeah. painting. But what what happened to Vermeer then? Because I assume that he must have been uh, furious with uh, with this news. Yeah, eventually uh, Goering found this out, but by then, of course, uh, the war was over and Goering was being uh, was being detained in Nuremberg, waiting trial. And of course, eventually he didn't go to trial because he committed suicide. But uh, anyway, um, but for Meagher, meanwhile, I mean, th- this painting actually turned out to be his Achilles' heel because it was um, when 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 Goering fled his fled his house um, or he put his art in storage. Uh, it was then discovered by the um, uh, uh, by the uh, the monuments men, which was the uh, division of the uh, U.S army that went around Europe trying to reclaim all the looted uh, uh, art the Nazis had looted, they, they found this painting and they also found the paper trail that showed how Goering had bought it and that took them back to Vermeeren so Vermeeren was mm. arrested in Amsterdam on suspicion of course of having uh, sold, having traded priceless cultural artifacts with the enemy <laughs> so he was in a bit of a bind because that was a that, that was a crime that covered that carried very severe um, uh, um, uh, the, the punishments uh, potentially even uh, according to some accounts the death penalty so for Macon really was you know had, had a big decision to make about what to do yeah. because what he did was he f- Sophie's choice uh, it was a Sophie's yeah. choice exactly yeah so I so, so either I get put to death for trading for being a, for, being, for high treason for trading cultural heritage with the enemy or I come clean so he did I think what was probably the sensible thing was he fessed up so in his uh, interrogation by the Amsterdam art police um, who's, because there was a policeman who was allocated to trying to trace all of the paintings that had gone out of the Netherlands during the war um, he was basically asked about why about this painting he sold to Goering and Vermeeren just sat there and said well that's not a Vermeer um, it's a forgery and the policeman said well how do you know it's a forgery he said because I painted it <laughs> and the policeman said, well, how can you prove that you painted it? He says, I'll paint you another one. And he did. And that's what he did. He actually painted a fake Vermeer in the, in, in oh. the, 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 well, in the house on the Kaiserskracht that, that, where he was being detained. Not his own house. There was another house a bit further along that the police had um, acquired for their, in, 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 for their interrogations. And, uh, yeah, he, he actually he was given the materials. He was given all the paints and, the, yeah, and, 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 and presumably an oven to, to cook it in afterwards. Yeah, he, he painted a biblical scene of Jesus with the disciples. Um, and that was his mm. proof that he had forged all the other Vermeers because obviously he used all the same techniques and he could show how he'd done it. And at this point, so Vermeeren really, he, he, he committed what I think was his second great fraud of his career, which was that he persuaded the people of the Netherlands that he was a great war hero because he'd, he'd conned <laughs> him and going. Now, in fact, Han Vermeeren, he was, a, he was a committed Nazi. He was a member, Carl Carey, mm. member of the Nazi party. He bought an enormous house during the war and lifted up and held these huge debauched parties for his Nazi friends. Um, <laughs> and, uh, yeah, and then the, somehow... And part of the reason he made these forgeries is he hated modernism. He had very much took the Nazi view that it was degenerate art and that you, people should be making yeah. pretty landscape scenes. And that was the reason, one of the reasons he fell out with the Dutch art establishment because it was a time when Van Gogh and painters like Piet Mondrian were becoming uh, popular and becoming in vogue. So this is great revenge on the art establishment to, to kind of create these forgeries to show that uh, you know, modernism was bunk. He even had a cop sent a copy of a book that he wrote about art to Hitler with an inscription to it saying, to my beloved Führer, in grateful tribute. <laughs> but at his trial, he very oh. much played up the fact that he'd conned Goering with this forgery. So during the trial, it was yeah. a huge sensation at the time in 1947, starting in October 1947, he basically became kind of popular cult hero because he was the guy who'd really socked it to Goering. So he, and then an opinion yeah. poll at the time said he was the second most popular person in the Netherlands after Princess Juliana. Oh, wow. Yeah. Good okay. Lord. Yeah. Well, we do know opinion well, he, polls are very often wrong. I think Meister Hunt probably did this one. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Wow. What a great story. Yeah. Uh, the, uh, very. I mean, was it known that he had 
you know, send Hitler some gifts? Did, did people know that or did he just uh, hide that I think that it fact? kind of got covered uh, up in the publicity. I mean, it was known yeah. that he was... It did say, I mean, a report at the time uh, of the first day of his trial uh, said that he was a Nazi party member. Uh, and yet, you know, I think that just became overwhelmed in the car. I think the Dutch needed a hero after the war, quite frankly. They, need, they, yeah. they, 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 they were looking, for, again, just as he sold the art world, the, this, the, 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 he created this chapter of Vermeers because he knew that the, the art critic were looking for biblical Vermeers. Similarly, he knew that the people were looking for war heroes, people who'd got one over the Nazis, and that was how he presented himself in court. So he just gave the people what he they gave wanted. people what they wanted, and they they lapped it mm. up. So yeah, so he had a two month trial, started in October 1947, ended in November. But at the end of his trial, he was sentenced to one year in jail, which is a lot better than the death penalty. So he was quite happy with that. But then he had a heart attack <laughs> in November, a second heart attack in December, and he died at the end of 1947. So he never actually went to prison. And they reckon he made fifty million dollars in today's money from his from all his forgeries in the course of his life. Yeah. And, yeah. and what happened to that money? Have we traced it? Do we uh, know well, where it is? No, most of it went to his widow, and uh-huh. he basically he basically told all the authorities, everyone who went, went asking about where his money came from. He said, "My wife had no had, had no idea what I was doing." Even though they were living together in the house in the south of France when he was he was cooking painted in the oven. No, there's this funny smell of bake light in the house, but never never suspected a thing. So basically, he he made sure that she was cleared of all uh, blame or suspicion of um, collusion, and she got to keep the money, effectively. Well. Good for her. And I believe um, Beaumont van Beuningen Museum, they uh, dedicated uh, an exhibition around his, uh, his forgeries, didn't they? Yeah. Recently. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So uh, they're also uh, piggybacking on, uh, on his success. Yeah. There. And the fact that he's, um, uh, yeah, which is quite kind of, you know, you've got to give Beaumont van Beuningen some credit for that because uh, they must have been pretty embarrassed when it all came out that these were forgeries, given that they paid one and a quarter million guilders for, for one of his works. My uh, second horrible history story is about that time South Limburg village of Eister became an imperial Ter Apel. Uh-huh. Um, it's uh, November 10th, 1918, and we are reaching uh, the end of the First World War. Um, during the entire conflict, the Netherlands, of course, managed to uh, stay out of the war and remain neutral, mostly because Germany had uh, last minute uh, decided not to invade the Netherlands together with Belgium. Uh, so uh, we were very grateful for that. Uh, but the Netherlands remained neutral and um, uh, uh, we reached the end of the war. And obviously Germany has lost and Kaiser Wilhelm II, who was uh, yeah, basically the commander-in-chief of the German army for the entire war, uh, who had his headquarters in Spa in Belgium, was thinking, what should I do next? Uh, he, he couldn't stay in Belgium, of course, if he didn't want to uh, be captured by the Allies. And he could also not return to Germany because there was a, uh, a revolution going on there. Um, so he did the only thing he could do, and that was flee to the Netherlands. Uh, and on the early morning of November 10th, he arrived by car in the border town of Eister in the south of Limburg, and he requested political asylum in the Netherlands. Mm. And yeah, the border officials there, they just didn't know what, what on earth was happening there. You know, it's, uh, imagine you are just a, a, a border official in Eister and yeah. uh, all of a sudden uh, the German emperor yeah. stands in front of your, yeah. Yeah. In front was, of your was, nose. Was there a border guard with, uh, w- w- with a very elaborate blonde hairdo who just shouted, Grenze dicht, and, sent and turned him around <laughs> again? <laughs> In Russian. I think Venlo is the north of Limburg. Ah, <laughs> oh, right. It's a little less Beverfeyish, I yeah. think. Um, no, but there were uh, Belgian refugees uh, standing uh, in Eister because, you know, uh, it was just uh, over the border and they were shouting at him and he was yelling insults at the Kaiser as he was standing at the platform, right. waiting for these border officials to, you know, figure out what to do. And the thing is, the, the train station didn't have a telephone. So the border official on duty had to uh, jump on his bike and go to the nearby telephone to call the Hague <laughs> what to do. And it took several hours. There was a famous picture of the Kaiser standing on the platform in Eister, yeah, just waiting for whatever was going to happen next. And yeah, it took a few hours, but eventually uh, the green light was given uh, and uh, he was in fact granted asylum in the Netherlands. And that annoyed the allied countries uh, very much. Uh, They, of course, regarded him as a war criminal, but the Dutch government said uh, the country had remained neutral and they regarded the Kaiser as a private person. So that way they were able to, to give him asylum. And also the fact that Queen Wilhelmina was related to Wilhelm probably helped uh, as well in yeah, favor yeah. of the Kaiser. 
Yeah, uh, I can't so help you... thinking that uh, the, 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 the and probably an official from the Belastingdienst was there as well and offered him a very favourable tax construction. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. So the imperial train was sent from Spa to Eister to transport the Kaiser further in the Netherlands, and he arrived in Amerongen the next day in Utrecht, where he uh, uh, was able to stay with a friend, uh, and that's also uh, at that house where he signed the official abdication uh, as German emperor. So, um, yeah, Amerongen also has a, uh, uh, of all places, has an important place in the history of, uh, yeah. of Germany. And the original plan for him was to stay only a few weeks in Amerongen as he was figuring out where to go next. Uh, but that turned out uh, to be two years. So if you ever have a guest uh, at your house overstaying <laughs> uh, his welcome a little bit too much, just uh, thank yourself that you, uh, you, you haven't befriended a, uh, an ex-emperor. Yes. Because, uh, yeah, two years... With that guy, that uh, must have been dreadful, I think. Um, and in the meantime, Wilhelm had bought a small mansion in Doren, uh, also in Utrecht, and that remained his home for the rest of his life. He had 58 train carriages full of furniture, art, and kits come over from Berlin. Wow. And I have no, I went there uh, last week to Huis Doren. It's now a museum. You can still visit it. I have no idea how on earth they managed to fit 58 train carriages of furniture in there. I don't think they, they managed to do that. They must have sent plenty of that back to Berlin yeah. because, you know, it's, it's just too small. And, yeah, the Kaiser was a peculiar guy, wasn't he? He was, um, uh, he was born with a, uh, uh, with a uh, uh, withered arm. His left arm was basically useless, and yeah, he tried to compensate for that defect his entire life. And yeah, some historians suggest that his... Uh, 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 that that uh, compensation, that uh, need of compensation, uh, ultimately led to the aggressive um, uh, foreign politics of, of of the German Empire and eventually to the German uh, to to, uh, to the right. First World War. Yeah. So, so, um, so, so if he's he'd been born with two arms, uh, yeah, it, it might have uh, history might have been very different. Yeah. Who knows? Who yeah. knows? Yeah, and. Um, I've been to Berlin as well, and I've visited one of his palaces. And if you just see the sharp contrast between how grand these palaces are in, in Berlin and that how tiny that house is in yeah. Doren, it must have been humiliating for this guy to uh, you know end up there. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah. My heart bleeds for him. My God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, it would have been an extra humiliation, wouldn't it, if if the Nazis had used uh, done their straight arm salutes with the left arm rather than the right. So. <laughs> And exactly, how did he get yeah, all that yeah. furniture in? I mean, you know, you come as a refugee, you're not allowed to go and then import 57 coach loads full of furniture. I mean, you're lucky if you uh, get to live in a tent here. Well, these again, days. I'm, I'm sure he cut a deal with the Belastingdienst to be, be allowed to keep his <laughs> possessions. <laughs> he definitely did, yeah. Um, he wasn't allowed, though, to uh, to leave Doren. Uh, there was a uh, uh, five uh, kilometers radius uh, circle uh, drawn around this house, and he wasn't allowed to to leave uh, that area. So he's kind of in uh, lockdown. Without then. special, he was he was basically in lockdown. Yeah, yeah. he spent his last days basically uh, cut chopping wood. That was his hobby. He. Uh, he, with his he good arm, for the, yeah. For the rest of his life, yeah. with his good arm, I'm not sure how he how he. I mean, yeah, yeah, he must have he must got a servant to hold the hold the log for him. Yeah, right? yeah. yeah. I think yeah. again, gentlemen, we need evidence for this. You know, I mean, it's very good making it's, it's these well, claims, but <laughs> it's well recorded that he loved chopping woods. Uh, uh, so that, that's just a fact. But uh, there's also in this house uh, the the dining room is. Um, is also prepared. They, you know, they they set the whole table, and at the seat where he he sat, he they have an imperial uh, nork, um, because you know he couldn't use his left hand, so he had a special device which served both as a fork and a knife. Right. Um, and yeah, the irony is, of course, that he was the supreme leader of the of the most powerful uh, army of Europe, and he couldn't even cut his own couldn't meat use at the table. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 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 So and, and that's also a strong irony there as well um he died there in 1941 he was very uh enthusiastic with hitler's successes in uh, uh in the in the second world war he also wrote notes to hitler congratulating him on his military successes but he never got a real uh, yeah, a nice or warm reply back mm. uh fortunately for him he <laughs> he didn't see the defeats of hitler on the battlefield uh after 1941 uh, but he was buried in Dorn as well and that's where he he uh, uh they they built a small mausoleum on the grounds of house Dorn. 
Um, he wanted. He only wants to be buried back in, in Germany when the monarchy is restored. So his coffin has handles on it. Uh, it's not attached to anything, so he, they can just uh, easily transport it back to Germany in case uh, the monarchy is ever restored there. And uh, yeah, as I said, that mansion is now a museum. You can visit it. There are tours in Dutch, English, French, and German. So yeah, if you want to catch up with your languages, you can <laughs> you can uh, you can go there. Uh, and it is, uh, I think it's also a nice tip. It's a, one of these very curious places uh, in world history um, and fascinating to see, uh, yeah, uh, how he lived there. And uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's a fascinating place, I think. Yeah. Lots of tips for the next few weeks. Uh, uh, exactly. Yeah, and we... I have to say, you know, I've learned an awful lot here, but all these stories are so relevant to today still and that's kind of scary i mean there's a scottish connection in a few of them too which is a bit odd but mm -hmm. um but you know they're, they're all really relevant and um you just wonder if history is going to start repeating yeah. itself yeah yeah history is always lurking in the background isn't it uh, yeah wherever you go it's uh that was the Dutch News Podcast uh, summer special for uh, Patreons. Uh, again, thank you for supporting our podcast um, uh, and keeping it afloat. It yeah. costs time and it costs money, so we are very appreciative of your support. Yeah, and hopefully um, we give you a few tips as well of places to visit during your during your summer break. Yeah, so if you if you can't get away because uh, KLM cancels your flights, <laughs> uh, you can just stay in the country and you have plenty of stuff to do. Just follow all the tips that we gave you, and uh, yeah, you uh, you will have an excellent summer. Hopefully, we will not melt away. Uh, hopefully, we have some cooler cooler days. Even though it's only two days, we shouldn't uh, we shouldn't whine too much and uh, complain too much about it. Yeah. Uh, as, otherwise, Robin will get mad at us. <laughs> um, so yeah, th again, thank you for supporting us and uh, have a nice summer. And uh, we'll be back in September.